Well, Christy prayed for us, so we'll dive right in. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Do we believe this? Do we really believe this about all of Scripture? All of the rules of the Lord, that they are true, altogether righteous, more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey, and in keeping them there is great reward. One of my goals in this message is that you and I would be able to once again affirm this truth about the Scriptures, and in particular about the passage that we come to this morning. It's Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1, if you would turn there with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this is probably one of the most familiar and yet disliked passages in the Bible. This is because it is probably one of the most misinterpreted and therefore misapplied passages in the Bible. One which has on many occasions been used to justify wicked practices and institutions and it has also been used as a weapon to perpetrate egregious abuses. Now, this isn't anything new. Anyone can pervert just about anything to justify the wickedness, oppression, abuse, and mistreatment of others. That's our sinful nature. Like Satan in the wilderness, they twist God's words for their advantage to defraud or harm their neighbors instead of loving them. And this is especially true when we come to passages like this one, which lays out the right relationship between those in authority and those under authority. I want you to notice these are the two major categories that we see in this passage that Paul is addressing, those in authority and those under authority. And Paul gives three examples of these types of relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, and masters and servants, or employers and employees. This is because these are the three most common and identifiable relationships where these principles apply. 
But these are not the only relationships where we find one who is in authority and another who is under it. It's in virtually every aspect of life, isn't it? It really is. We see other places in Scripture where believers are to submit to elders of the church, citizens to the state, and each believer to every other believer. Paul simply chooses these three predominant relationships where this kind of relationship existed during his time as an example for all authority-based relationships. And the instructions for those in authority and those under authority apply to all of us, to everybody in this room. It really does. We have all kinds of different contexts of life. Everyone in this room, or virtually everyone in this room, exercises both of these roles. There are places and areas in life where you are in authority, and other places and areas in life where you are under someone's authority. And so, we all need to rightly understand our roles and responsibilities, what concepts like submission and love and obedience and work and service really mean when we are occupying these positions. This is because, well, several reasons. Often, those in authority abuse their roles and responsibilities and even make use of a distorted understanding of words like the words in this passage to manipulate those under their authority to satiate their own wicked desires. And they're not the only ones who misuse. We also see it misconstrued by those who are oppressed. The abused often also misunderstand the meaning of these words and continue to willingly subject themselves to their abusers, allowing continued godless mistreatment under the pretense of supposedly obeying these instructions. When this happens enough times, the perverted idea of authority becomes the understood and accepted idea of authority. People then interpret Paul's instructions through the abuses of them rather than the true meaning and purpose of them. Cultural definitions are imbued upon his words to the point where his intended meaning is virtually unrecognizable. Indeed, the very idea of authority is now seen as detestable, and those who attempt to live out its godly design are viewed to be primitive, ignorant, even repulsive. Any of you all know what I'm talking about? My hope this morning is that we can see Paul's words for what he intended them to mean and not what our culture has twisted them to mean. And when we do that, we will see the beauty, the glory of God's design, of God's rules, that they are true, that they are altogether righteous, more desirable than gold. You hear that? More desirable than gold, sweeter than honey, and a great reward for those who believe and obey them. So, let's begin with verse 18. All right, let's stop there. <laughs> but wait, you didn't read anything. That's right. The first thing that we need to realize in order to rightly understand Paul's instructions is they are not an island unto themselves. Believe it or not, he didn't start this section 
with verse 18, but had several verses before it which are essential to understanding what he is about to say. This section is not some disjointed aside or a completely new thought. There is a progression to Paul's instruction. That is, there is a context to what is being said. You've heard it over and over and over and over and over again. Context, context, context. Context is imperative. Context is paramount, especially when it comes to easily misunderstood or misinterpreted passages like this one. We get ourselves into trouble when we remove words and ideas and concepts from their contexts. I was listening to a book uh, when we were in Montana the other day, and the guy said, words are stupid without their context. That is absolutely true, isn't it? Words are stupid without their context. We have to have context or we can't understand. These instructions are Paul, of Paul are coming right off the heels of the verses that Kurt preached about last week. And these verses inform Paul's instructions here. So let's really quickly go back and look at what Paul said there. Verse 12, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, put on love and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Mm. Putting on these traits is foundational to the instructions that follow. Paul thought these qualities brought these qualities to bear first because it is these qualities which inform submission and love and obedience and right treatment. In other words, these commands from Paul are imbued with these ideas, not with the cultural ideas, with these ideas, with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. Now, I want you to notice that Paul gave one predominant characteristic here. We are to put on, especially put on, love. Now, love is not what the culture defines it either, is it? It's not some sappy, sappy, sentimental feeling. Love is the essence of all of God's commands and therefore of Paul's instructions here. We are to love the Lord your God. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because this is about loving other people, right? This is about instructions about how we are to treat other people, how we are to interact with other people. So how are we to love our neighbors as ourselves? Jesus paraphrased it this way. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, your actions towards others should be the same as you desire them to act toward you. To treat others the way you would want to be treated by them if you were in their shoes. If you are in the position of authority, how would you want others to treat you if they were your authority? 
Mm, that's a good question, isn't it? And, and if you are under authority, how would you want others to work and to treat you if they were under your authority? This, then, is the guiding principle, this love, along with compassion and patience. We don't like that P word, do we? And kindness and humility, that's another, and that H word. And meekness. Again, these qualities are foundational to these instructions. To put it another way, those in authority... In order to be a godly authority, must first have love for, compassionate hearts for, kindness toward, humility toward, meekness toward, and patience for those under their authority. Mm. And those under authority, in order to act in a godly manner, must first have, yep, the same stuff, love for, compassionate hearts for, kindness toward, humility toward, meekness toward, and patience for those who are in authority over them. So let me ask you, if compassion and, and kindness and humility, meekness, patience, and love are at the center of and inform these instructions, would that change how we view the instructions? Would we see the abuses that we see if those who were in these positions were actually clothed with these qualities when they relate to and act toward others? There are other contextual clues that help us rightly understand Paul's words here as well. Did you notice as we read the multiple clarifying phrases scattered throughout the passage itself? As is fitting in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord, fearing the Lord. This purpose also directly precedes verse 18. Oh, there's a verse 17? There really is. Verse 17. And whatever you do, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, so, so you're saying that this is, this is about pleasing the Lord? Yes! It is! That's the big idea. The goal behind Paul's writing and what he is saying here. Look at those words again. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. That is what we are all doing in this instance, in all of our relationships, in whatever we do, we are reflecting Him. We are either honoring Him or not. You see, all of life is an act of worship and service. All of it. 
That is, all that you do, every decision that you make, and the motivations from which you act are either acts of service toward Christ or toward something else. What we do in public and in private, alone or with others, big or small, are ultimately done from the motive of, out of an allegiance either to God in Christ or to something else. You don't decide to serve. You are serving. Every moment of the day, you are pouring out your life for something or for someone. You don't choose to serve. You simply decide who and how you are serving. You don't choose to serve. You are simply deciding who and how you are serving. We are either doing what we do as for the Lord or not. Either for Him, in spite of Him, or against Him. My interaction with others is ultimately an interaction with Christ Jesus my Lord. What I say or do to others is ultimately either an act of worship to Him or defiance against Him. We, therefore, should not be doing things by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That is, we are not to be doing things that simply give the appearance of honoring others, all the while resenting or despising them. We are not simply trying to people please, but are trying to please the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. As Paul says here, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Oh, fearing the Lord. Oh, what does that mean? It's a good question. We should talk about that. Fearing the Lord does not mean that we are to constantly be afraid that if we step out of line, have a miscue, do something wrong or sin, that God is there in His fearsome anger, ready to punish us. Mm, kind of view it that way sometimes, don't we? You see, the key to understanding this fear is an understanding of who you are to fear. Notice that it says, fearing who? The Lord. That is, Jesus. You know, the one of whom Paul spoke about in chapters 1 and 2? Jesus, who is supreme. Jesus, who reconciled, that is past and perfect tense, reconciled us who once were alienated and hostile in mind in his body of flesh by his death on the cross in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in him. Jesus, who is sufficient for us. You want to know why Paul started with Jesus? Because that is the key. He is sufficient for us. He is the one in whom we are firmly rooted. The one in whom we are filled and complete. The one in whom we were circumcised and buried and have been raised to life. Jesus, in whom we have been made alive. So this means that 
This is not a fear of wrath, of judgment, or of punishment, which distrusts Jesus' work on the cross. Yeah, you heard that sentence right. This means that this is not a fear of wrath, judgment, or punishment, which distrusts Jesus' work on the cross. Rather, this fear is saturated in grace, in the grace of the gospel. Therefore, says the writer of Hebrews, since we are receiving a kingdom, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Listen to these words by John Bunyan. He says, By faith in the blood of Christ, it is not a fear of being condemned, but a glad reverence. Far from a fear of punishment that distrusts God's love, godly fear arises from a trust in God's mercy to sinners and is mingled with love for God. Christians should not resist this fear, but should cherish it and seek to excel in it. There's a, there's a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. Is Eric Jett in here? Because we know that's his favorite book. And in this scene, Hopeful and Christian are walking along the path, and, and Hopeful says to Christian, he says, how would you describe right fear? Christian says, I'd say you can know that it is true or right fear if it gives birth to and maintains in the soul a great reverence for God, His Word, and His ways. So this soul is kept tender by making it afraid to turn to the right or to the left from these affections to anything that may dishonor God that may break its peace, grieve the spirit, or cause the enemy to speak of God with reproach. Mm. Soul is kept tender by making it afraid to turn to the right or left from these affections. Did you hear that? This is a right fear in that you desire to honor the Lord his word, and his ways. And you're afraid of doing wrong, not because you'll be punished, but because you're afraid that you'll dishonor Christ, that you'll diminish his glory, that you'll displease him, that you'll serve Jesus' enemies and be an instrument of ridicule to his name. Our fear should be a fear of treating Jesus as common, his grace as cheap, His commands as contemptible and His ways as inferior. All of Paul's instructions here then are simply particular aspects, positions or relationships in life where we are to remember this foundational concept. Pleasing to the Lord. Glorifying the Lord. You are serving God the Lord Christ. You are representing Him. You are honoring Him or dishonoring Him by your lives, by the way you interact with others. This 
gives us our next point of application. We need to continuously be asking ourselves if the way that we are operating in our relationships and personally with others are honoring to Christ. Really? Would Jesus be honored by the way I just talked to that person? Is Jesus glorified? Is his beauty seen? Is his compassion, the compassion of Christ, seen by the way that I talk and interact with others? Those are the questions we should be asking ourselves every day. Now Paul goes on to say, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. This gives us our last two points of context in understanding these commands. Paul wants us to be certain that wrongdoing will be paid back equivalent to the crime. Yes, even for believers. The believer will be corrected for their wrongdoing. The difference is that the believer is receiving correction. They are receiving discipline rather than punishment. God punishes the wicked for their wrongdoing, but he disciplines the believer for theirs. It's a great quote. Chip Ingram says, Discipline is future-focused, always pointing toward future acts. It has nothing to do with retribution and everything to do with redemption. Whereas the purpose of punishment is to inflict a penalty for an offense, the purpose of discipline is to train for correction and maturity. Whereas the origin of punishment is the frustration of the parent or the one in authority, the origin of discipline is a high motivation for the welfare of the child, of the one under authority. It is the welfare. And whereas the result of punishment is fear and shame, the result of discipline is security. Mm. Mm. The other significant point Paul is making here is that there is no partiality. In a parallel section in Ephesians, Paul says, there is no partiality with him. With who? With Jesus. With God. There, this is a crucial point to understand in these instructions we are being told that no partiality is going on here none god is not being partial to the husband or to the parent or to the master he is not showing favoritism in any way shape or form in this economy even though one is an authority and another is not really he is not showing partiality. In God's design, this economy, where there is one under authority and one in authority, they're all the same. The one under authority is of no less value or importance than the one in authority. Let me say that again. In God's economy, the one under authority is of no less value or importance 
than the one in authority. There is no partiality. These instructions relate to roles, to positions, to functions, and have nothing to do with the value or even the importance of things. They're about an arrangement of things or people. They're set in order or in sequence within a certain system. They're all of equal stature and importance so that things operate in an efficient and orderly way so as to bring a claim to the one who designed the system. In God's economy, no person in the position of authority is of any greater value or dignity or importance than the person who is under authority. People simply occupy different positions and fulfill different functions, but neither the person nor the position is of any different worth. And the design of these instructions are for the equal benefit of both parties, because there is no partiality for the equal benefit of both parties. They are both created in the image of God and are of inestimable, inestimable, well, inestimable value and worth. He is not showing favoritism to one or the other. He is not giving deference to one above the other. His functional design is perfect and beautiful for the parent and the child, for the employer and the employee, for the husband and for the wife, the one in authority and the one under authority. Get that. Get that. This means that the one under authority is in no better or worse position than the one in authority. Really? The one under authority is in no better or worse position than the one in authority because there is no partiality. If we say or believe that one is in a better position than the other, then we are misunderstanding what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul. Our sinful view has then infiltrated God's perfect economy. Each position, position comes with its own responsibilities and rewards, which are no better than the other positions. You see, Jesus was both in authority and under authority in the positions of rule and of submission. Paul says in Philippians, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, oh, you talk about ultimate authority, he is God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. <laughs> wow. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in that human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he did that, because he became a servant, because he humbled himself and put himself in that submissive place, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus submitted to the Father. He obeyed the Father. He emptied himself. He became obedient to death. He became a servant of all. Was he then less divine in any way? Was he inferior when he did this and took on this position? Everybody say, no. Good job. A little louder. No. Good job. You guys are good. Did he consider being a servant a position of lesser value of him or importance? Everybody say, no. What did he say about it? Well, in Matthew 20, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, well, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even, even, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we find fault in submission or obedience, the problem is with our judgment and not with God. We are wrongfully finding partiality because in God, there is no partiality. In this economy, there is no partiality. Yeah, I, I know that we in our modern culture, because of the abuse of many who have been in authority, see being in authority as better than being under authority. But we're wrong. But we're wrong. We all tend to think that one is greater than the other, whereas God says it's simply not true. Within this economy that God has set up, there is no partiality, nor will he show partiality in judging people based upon what position they were in. They will all be judged righteously for how they fulfilled or failed to fulfill the roles that they were put in. That is why he said, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. They will be paid back, everyone, equally, for the positions that they were supposed to be doing, for the roles that they were supposed to be fulfilling. Every one of them, impartially. So let's put this all together to find a clear definition of what these responsibilities do and do not entail. When you are in a position of authority, you are called to love the one under your authority. <laughs> when you are in a position of authority, you are called to love the one under your authority. That is, you are called to seek the highest lasting good 
of the one under your authority. This love is to be filled with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. And you are to do this for the glory and honor of Christ. In a way that demonstrates His compassion, His kindness, His humility, His meekness, His patience, and His love. You are demonstrating the compassion of Christ to the person under your authority. That's what you're called to do. Paul adds this principle when he says these, gives these instructions to the church at Ephesus. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As Christ loved the church. Further, as the authority, you are called to treat those under your authority justly and fairly. That is, with righteousness and equality, as Christ would. To treat them the way they're supposed to be treated. The way God created them to be treated because they bear His image. In other words, authority is a commitment to serve and support the one under authority in such a way that that person may reach their full potential as a person created in the image of God. Yeah, I'll repeat that for you note takers. Authority is a commitment to serve and support the one under authority in such a way that that person may reach their full potential as a person created in the image of God. That is your responsibility as one in authority. And you all, again, are in authority in certain places. If you are in a position of authority and want to worship, honor, and serve Christ in that capacity, then you are to care for, you are to protect, and act on behalf of and for the benefit of those under your care. They are under your care. You are to lead them to what is good. See, we need to realize something. Whether we're husbands or parents or employers or anyone else, the person who is in authority is never commanded to rule those under their authority, but to love them. Did you hear that? Those in authority are never commanded to rule those under their authority, but to love them. To treat them justly and fairly and not harshly and not provoke them to anger. Now, we're prone to those things. 
We're prone to error when we view those under our authority as means to our ends instead of to their benefit. To our happiness instead of to their happiness. To our pleasure instead of to their good. Sam Storms says, Sam was, his, his commentary was just crucial to me in this. I am so indebted to him. Um, I highly recommend his, his work on Colossians. He says, authority is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. It is always other-oriented. I can't think of a more horrendous sin than exploiting the God-given responsibility to lovingly lead by perverting it into justification for using those under your authority to satisfy your lusts and thirst for power. To be in the place of authority is to be vested with the power to benefit those under your care and protection. In other words, you have been authorized to serve them. Jesus was authorized to serve and became a servant of all. John Stott once said, if authority means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush. Power to serve, not to dominate. Power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the authority's love is to be the cross of Christ. (laughs) The standard of the authority's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. This should forever put to rest any suggestion that godly authority is inherently oppressive or offensive or contrary to the spirit and life of Jesus. What about those who are under authority? Which all we all are as well. When we are in that position of subordination, we are called to submit to, obey, and serve the one in authority over us. This submission and service is to be filled with, yep, you got it, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and love. Submission is the disposition to honor and affirm another's authority and an inclination to yield to their leadership. It is a commitment to support your authority in such a way that they may reach their full potential as people created in the image of God. Boy, that sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? 
Submission is a commitment to support your authority in such a way that they may reach their full potential as a person created in the image of God. And we are to do this, guess what? For the glory of Christ. Yes! That's the point. For His glory, for His honor, in a way that makes Him look great, that demonstrates His compassion to those in authority over us. Yes! We are demonstrating compassion to those in authority over us. The service and submission is fundamentally an attitude and act of obedience to Christ. Just as the authority's love and just treatment is fundamentally an attitude and act of obedience to Christ. Therefore, your submission and service to the one of an authority over you is qualified by God's commands. Not your own preferences, not your opinions, and not your expertise. This means that if you are ever asked or told by your authority to do something that violates Scripture, where do we go? The Scripture. If they tell you to do something that violates Scripture, you are not only free to disobey, you are obligated to do so. Let me repeat that one again, too. If you are ever asked or told by an authority to do something that violates Scripture, you are not only free to disobey, but obligated to disobey. Your allegiance is to God first. When anyone demands anything of you that is contrary to the word and will of God, they ask too much. You must refuse to obey. And if they are demanding that you violate your conscience, the same holds true. They are to be disobeyed. Further, submission, obedience, and service do not require that one sit passively by and endure the sin or abuse of the one in authority. Never. The scriptures do not mean that you have no right to stand up for what is true and is good or to resist your authority's evil ways. You must. God's word does not call upon anyone to acquiesce to brutality or to thievery or to abuse. True biblical authority never condones or allows for oppression for abuse, for cruelty, for exploitation, for coercion, for manipulation, or for, for domination. Never. So, if you know or suspect that this is occurring in your home, or at your workplace, or in your church, or anywhere else for that matter. Please, please, please find someone to talk to that you trust. 
If it's not an elder or a deacon, there are plenty of others, men and women here, who will stand by your side to protect you from this evil. Once again, to be under one's authority is an opportunity to help your authority reach their full potential as a person created in the image of God through submission, obedience, and service that is filled, (laughs) that is filled with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and most of all love demonstrates the compassion of Christ. Do you see, do you see how these instructions of God through Paul were designed for the welfare of everyone involved? It's for your good. God's word is for your good. God's instructions are for your reward, for your benefit. When these roles are fulfilled, They lead to the true highest good of everyone involved. They glorify the God who designed this economy through promoting the good of those who walk according to their guidelines. For those who walk in accordance with them, these instructions are altogether righteous. More desired, more to be desired than gold. Even the finest gold sweeter than honey, even from the honeycomb, and are of great, great reward. These instructions are Christ's compassion to you. Whether you're in authority in in an area or under authority, it is Christ's compassion to you, meant for you to demonstrate his love and his care for you. So rejoice at his words. Rejoice at these truths. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your instructions. Thank you that you cared so much for us that you created this system within which to work that benefits all of us. That demonstrates your compassion to all of us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Please help us to walk faithfully when we are in each of these roles to honor you, to glorify you. Remind us that we are serving you, the Lord Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.